Good day and welcome to the Climate Change Therapy Podcast, a product of BlockRadius.net, your most trusted online media outlet for urban planning and unrelated topics. Today is February 29th, leap year 2020. I'm your host, Hank Felsman. Thank you for tuning in. Today, we have a very special guest for you. It's my brother, Peter. Uh, He's here with us in studio. He's two years younger than I. I like to remind him uh, that's... (laughs) the best way to introduce him. He's just my younger brother, two years. That's probably all you need to know. But most importantly for today in particular, he is a professional climate change therapist. Well, (laughs) professional therapist, that is. But now more than ever, therapists are having to adapt to being climate change therapists too. With the rise of quote-unquote eco-anxiety, a pandemic that knows no bounds, that reaches both the young and the old, that hits scientists working in the profession out there directly tracking, say, those measuring the rate of the glaciers melting in the Arctic, as well as afflicting people not working directly in the field of climate change who may feel anxiety over the fact that they are not doing enough in their current jobs, a term also known as professional paralysis. But most importantly, like I said before, he is my brother, my younger brother, family. And if you can't talk about the most pressing issue of our time with family, then with who? Exactly. But before I bring out my brother, Peter, my younger brother, Peter, we would be remiss not to take a moment to thank our sponsor, the Handlebar Knobby Shop. Ever wonder why custom doorknobs haven't yet become a thing? Well, now they have, with over 500 selections of doorknobs already in stock, plus an endless endless line of custom requests currently in development. The Handlebar Knobby Shop revolution has arrived. Come with specs for any door, and we'll fit you with a custom handle of your choosing. Two bolts, four bolts, wood door, steel door. It doesn't matter. Don't believe it? Well, it's time to change your tune. Stranger things have been invented. The Handlebar Knobby Shop. It's not rocket science. It's doorknobs. And as always, how could we forget to thank our sponsor, Rollin' Cases, the most rocking suitcases on wheels. Rollin' Cases, whether you're weaving your way through customs at Charles de Gaulle Airport or just hitchhiking to a remote trailhead in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Broken bike in one hand, suitcase in the other. Rollin' Cases are the suitcases on wheels for you and your life's journey. Rollin' Cases. And with that, ladies, gentlemen, listeners, old and new, I bring you my younger brother, Peter. All right, Peter, it's good to have you back on Climate Change Therapy. I see you got your broken coffee mug full with black coffee. Got my rolling rock in hand. Uh, I just introduced you as my younger brother, yet a professional climate change therapist. Do you want to take a moment and tell our listeners a little bit about yourself in your own words? Sure. Uh, I've got a PhD in social work and psychology. I'm a licensed social worker in the state of Michigan and the state of New York now. Uh, It has been a a bit since I have worked professionally as a therapist. saw my last clients in Michigan before moving last year. Uh, The plan is to pick up clients over the summer. Mm -hmm. Quick question about licensure in Michigan. Does it apply for both the lower and the upper peninsula? Yes, it does. It's a statewide. And and do all laws uh, in Michigan, all state laws apply to both the upper and lower peninsulas? And are there, (laughs) are there, are there like laws that only apply to one peninsula and not the other? I think that it is a, a state 
government applies to the state and then uh you know let local municipality rules are uh, mm-hmm. separate but I don't, I don't think there are like explicitly there's not separate governments for mm-hmm. the lower and upper peninsulas as holes i don't think gotcha and and just for our listeners who might be tuning in for the first time and want to know if if this is a climate change podcast with guests who are experts in the field um Will you list your your degrees? Again, this is climate change therapy. It's not necessarily climate change science. It's climate change mm-hmm. therapy. I'll start. I'll, I'm a, I have a master's degree in city planning. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's not master's in climate change, but we do things that are, you know, that relate to climate change. Trying to take cars off the road, make neighborhoods more uh, walkable. Uh, yeah. Can you list your degrees for our listeners? Because it's it's a fun exercise. Like, like all my degrees. Yeah, I'm very proud of all of them. As an older brother, okay. I feel like I should get some credit. Yeah, oh, full credit to you. Full credit to you. Um, yeah, I, I feel a little bit like an asshole anytime I do this, but I've got a bachelor's of music. Okay, that's climate change related. I've got a, <laughs> a bachelor's of uh, arts and psychology. Okay. And then I got a master's. two bachelors. Yeah, master's in social work, master's of psychology, and a PhD in social work and psychology. I'm doing a postdoc now, which is not a degree, it's a job. So you have two bachelors, two masters, and two PhDs? One joint PhD. But are the bachelors is joint? Uh it's technically two degrees. So the bachelors it's is a, it's two a degrees dual that dual you... degree program, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So say what your PhD is again in in social work and psychology. Okay, and these are all from University of Michigan, yeah, yeah, the spent... Lower Peninsula. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, and what was your main thesis on, or your dissertation? Sorry, what's your dissertation my, on? My dissertation was called Improvisational Theater for Psychological Health, and it was studying the the experience of improvisational theater as uh, something that might help reduce anxiety. Okay, and what was the hypothesis of this piece, and was the hypothesis proven true? <laughs> well, uh, so the, I the way the dissertation works in my field is often uh, three papers tied together with a intro and a general conclusion. So it's a five chapter dissertation, and those three separate papers usually have separate hypotheses. Um, so I guess the core ones that hang together well is are. Uh, you know, does participating in improv theater predict reductions in social anxiety? That's the first paper. That was the first paper. And did it? Yeah. Okay. Uh, second paper. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. Spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to read it. Uh, Henry's going to break it down. <laughs> What's the second paper? Uh, the second paper was a series of experiments where we had people, uh, university students, either engage in 20 minutes of improv exercises or social interaction control experiences. And the, the question was, what does improv uh, cause increases in uncertainty tolerance? Okay. That was the, that was the main thing. And then in our, in the third paper, we test whether participating in an improv program predicts reductions in social anxiety that can be explained in part by change in uncertainty tolerance can you kind of rephrase the second and third paper again just kind of say that again so the second paper was testing in a a uh, a causal relationship between doing improv and uh, 
being more comfortable engaging in the unknown, being more tolerant of uncertainty. Okay. So again, so the first one was about anxiety. Yes. The second one was about uncertainty, uncertainty tolerance. tolerance. Sure. Okay. And the third, or a one... couple other things in there, but yeah, that's the main, okay. main thing. And then the third one was tying the two together and showing that the program we studied in that first paper also predicts, uh, reductions in uncertainty intolerance. Hmm. Uh, What's the difference between anxiety and uncertainty intolerance? Um, well, people can experience uncertainty as anxiety. People can also experience, uh, other specific things as the like mm -hmm. primary subject of their anxiety. So you gotcha. might have like a specific, uh, phobia. You might be anxious in social situations. You might be anxious about climate change. <laughs> but, okay. uh, so anxiety is, is something that is kind of, it's, it's, it's rooted, it's diagnosable. It's always an uncertainty and tolerance is more external when there's something that's more uncertain. Yeah. So, uh, so is, is to tie this back to climate change therapy and eco anxiety, <laughs> Right. Is eco-anxiety kind of a misnomer, and should eco-anxiety be more eco-uncertainty intolerance? So the, the, the relationship between uncertainty tolerance and anxiety, um, one theory suggests that uncertainty tolerance is a um, kind of a, a common factor between a lot of disorders. So uh, with anxiety, uncertainty can increase the anxiety around a number of different things. So and anxiety basically can make the impact of uncertainty. It can exaggerate that impact. Opposite, the opposite relationship. Okay. Yeah. So, here, so here's uncertainty an tolerance is actually something that you might be born with. It's sort of, I'm thinking about this the opposite way. So ego anxiety is not really a misnomer. No, I, I, no, no, no. The, the, sorry. <laughs> the, uh, the more the underlying one underlying feature is uncertainty tolerance. So it's, it's considered like a contributor to the development and maintenance of anxiety. So if you're okay. not, if you have no tolerance for uncertainty, you might, uh, you might be, you might avoid situations that could actually reduce anxiety. So anxiety is kind of this umbrella term and within anxiety, one of the factors contributing to it is uncertainty tolerance. Yeah, I think, I I think that's true. Yeah. Okay. So I, I would say that uncertainty tolerance is the driving force behind eco. I think, eco it's, a, anxiety. I think it's a huge one. Yeah, absolutely. Cause we really don't know. There's so much unknown. Yeah. You know, like for example, no one could have predicted this coronavirus, and I don't know how related to yeah. climate change is, but we have all this anxiety over climate change and now it's, it's, it's the coronavirus and it's like, it's, it's here and different things happen. And yeah. uh, then there's going to be anxiety, you know, in this fall over hurricane season or, or and then um, over wildfire season. Yeah. Um, so we have, yeah. So, and those are impossible to predict. Yeah. Um, uh, anyway. Yeah. So one thing that's interesting to think about, um, is the function of an uncertainty anxiety mm -hmm. in evolutionary terms. So they talk about like, if there's a rustle in the, you know, nearby forest early on in human history, it's right. functional to be a little bit alarmed. Yes. Right. At, at the experience of uncertainty, 
that alarm helps people survive. Right. Uh, now, day to day, there are a lot of things related to uncertainty that are not so threatening, but we experience as, as anxiety and we experience as threatening. So like if you're are socially anxious, you might uh, experience anxiety about the unknowns of an event. You know, who's mm-hmm. going to be at the party? I don't know. That might increase my anxiety. Yeah. And, uh, and the, the culture, very, uh, even in the last 20 years in society, we've kind of taken measures through technology and the way we're connected to maximize certainty over yeah. our social situations That's and exactly right. decrease uncertainty. You know, it used to be that we would hear the doorbell ring and we'd be fine. We'd go and see who it was. Your mom, you know, mom would say, you know, hey, can you, can you just see who it is? Like now she, she would not trust. Who would trust a 10-year-old <laughs> with answering a doorbell? Right, no yeah. one, if someone ob- rings your doorbell, it's probably the cops yeah. and something has ter- yeah, terrible now, has happened. Now people have cameras security systems installed so they can see who's at the door before they decide to going on like a date now it's like you see them on the you have to it's internet dating and you like screen people yeah you know through all that as opposed to like a stranger yeah stranger talks to you at the bar or something so that that was uh this is hopefully the last to we'll talk about my dissertation i I don't mean to revisit it throughout the whole show guys if you want to read peter's dissertation (laughs) it's available online at www dot uh deep blue it's it's on like the university of michigan archives for dissertations okay or just email me anyway email email uh block radius net at (laughs) gmail.com and i'll put you in touch so the uh the part of it that i was excited about was in thinking of uncertainty tolerance, right? There are two logical strategies to deal with it. One is reduce uncertainty through measures you're talking about, right? Learn more information, figure out who's going to be at the party, mm-hmm. whatever. The other strategy is to be comfortable with uncertainty. Be, and that's, yeah. And that's where improvisational theater, mm. the repeated encounter with the unknown under somewhat pleasant experiences, uh, is potentially a, like a, an yeah. effective strategy. For increasing uncertainty time. That's beautiful. So again, to, to recap, your the first part of your dis- <laughs> dissertation was about um, it's about improv with an anxiety. Yep, and the second one is about improv with a specific subset of anxiety that we call uncertainty tolerance. Well, no. Yeah, maybe an underlying. Sure. Let's call it a subset sure. for lack of a better word. <laughs> okay. And then the third part is comparing or linking those two things. So how, how are those, how are those two things different? Just to recap? No, I, I mean, what was the conclusion of your third? The third paper uh, showed that participating in improv predicts reductions in social anxiety and reductions in uncertainty intolerance, and that the change in uncertainty intolerance uh, predicts the change in social anxiety it doesn't explain all of it though so there are other other things okay so improv mostly affects the uncertainty intolerance so there's other other aspects of anxiety beyond uncertainty tolerance yeah what are some of those other aspects like what else contributes to anxiety beyond uncertainty um hmm. i guess like the fears about the specific thing Okay. And are are those fears unrelated to uncertainty? Well, no. I so I think it is true a lot of times anxiety is 
maintained through avoiding things, right? And characterized by the fear of those things. Uncertainty is a more general thing. So you can have uncertainty about a lot of different things. Right. You can have, yeah. you can have uncertainty and not have anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You and, can, but you can have anxiety and not have uncertainty. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. You can be, uh, you can be, have a lot of uncertainty and tolerance and, uh, not be afraid of snakes. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, or yeah. But anxiety is different from fear. Yeah. It's, it is characterized by worry and fear. Like, let's say you want to, there are people who have social anxiety and they, they don't want to go to a party. You know, they don't want to go to the party because they know they're like certain that at the party people will be talking and they're going to have to talk to people or or they, they believe that that will happen, but sure. They actually aren't certain. So there are, there are interesting differences. Yeah. The reason they avoid the party is because it's, Mm-hmm. that's a more certain uh yeah thing like and, if if you avoid a party to sit at home and read a book you're you can be you can more accurately predict what's going to happen at home yeah yeah i think this distinction's interesting to explore because i wanted to bring you on here mostly to talk about not our own experience yes that'll come later but first eco anxiety right. um that's the term right now it's but it seems to me it's more Eco uncertainty, or or that anxiety is driven by eco uncertainty, yeah. in many ways, um, and that there's a kind of yeah, I don't know how that would. There's eco anxiety, and then there's also eco fatigue, where it's just this onslaught of of negative information about climate change, yeah. um, and a helplessness to do anything about it. Right, um, and then there's also eco trauma, which is like for people who have experienced hurricanes and displacement and flooding and wildfires and all and drought and all these kind of effects that are already reaching people. Um, so there's these different shades of eco related mental. I would, I don't know that you would call them mental illnesses, but you would call them. Um, yeah. I don't know what you would call them, but yeah, conditions uh, uh, let's just say, um, so there's several different types. Um, yeah. How would, how would you, how would you explain what eco anxiety is? Cause you've <laughs> just explained anxiety and uncertainty. Yeah. How would you explain eco anxiety and maybe some of the different shades of it? Yeah. So, uh, again, I'll just asterisk that I'm not an, an eco anxiety expert, but I, I would say but you're a psychologist. I'm a psychologist. Yeah. Um, so I, I'd say, Anxiety is a normal human experience in the face of stressful situations, and it becomes a disorder if it is... Disorder, that's the word. Right, if it is, uh, uh, like, if it is, if the experience of it is continuous and impairing. Mm-hmm. So if someone has worry and fear about climate change and that worry and fear impairs their functioning in day-to-day life that probably Mm -hmm. uh i think meets the criteria for eco-anxiety as a psychologist have you spoken with anyone um i know you have patient confidentiality and i'm not asking you kind of specifics but have you spoken (laughs) with anybody that 
has experienced eco-anxiety. And this doesn't have to be a patient, yeah. but just, just in your life. Yeah, so I, I would say that I have not uh, like uh, diagnosed anyone with, with right. eco-anxiety, but certainly I've talked to clients who have uh, uh, mm-hmm. disclosed fears related to the state of the environment and the okay. climate. And without naming any names, of course, uh, <laughs> um, right, are, are, right. are you able to kind of generally speak to what some of the causes of eco-anxiety are? Uh, well, the causes of the anxiety, we could we could say are, it would be the environment, right? right. Like which, wildfires, which are... hurricanes. These are, these are things in the U.S. where okay. maybe people's family members or people they know are affected by uh, natural events that we... Uh, connect to mm-hmm. climate change. So the anxiety is 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 the fear that these events will become more frequent in the future. Yeah, I gotcha. Um, is is that in line with the eco anxiety that that you feel? Uh, yeah, I would say so. I, I I think you know we've gone down rabbit holes a little bit about extra levels of global disruption <laughs> related mm. to climate change yeah um but yeah I, I think definitely the future state of of the environment and its impact on mm-hmm. uh, how would you treat that sort of eco-anxiety that sort of fear of natural disasters becoming more frequent um well i think it's i mean it's always case by case right so if we're can you help me just yeah let's just, say let's just like yeah maybe help me describe a potential case um you can use inf- your own experiences to help color this character let's say like i'm experiencing professional paralysis let's say i am you know work just i work in an office i work for a generic company uh doing some i do strategy you know i do like business kind of development sort of it it doesn't really you know it's it's not directly related to climate change okay and i'm feeling that this is such an important issue but my career is not directly related to it and i i i i have kids i don't know how to talk to them about it um the government's not doing anything about climate change um i have family and my parents are in florida um i have friends in california uh, you know i live on the east coast um okay the future so <laughs> uncertain yeah there are a, a lot of things here that we yeah would, we, would, we would it would take a lot you know we would want to take time with these different so you, so your your strategy would be to unpack each component well uh, yeah I, th- I think there there is a general like let's uh, be aware of when mm-hmm. our feelings about things are not functional. Say more I about that. I don't know what you mean by uh, that. So, for instance, I'd say it is uh, a you know it's a natural response to be anxious for. Uh, people who live in places that are more vulnerable to climate change, right? Uh, I, I don't think that is uh, 
in and of itself dysfunctional or there's anything wrong with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it starts to get worrisome when that worry, when those symptoms uh, exacerbate. Like, uh, so when there's a worry that you can't address. When, when there's a worry that you can't address, I think that's not necessarily a bad thing. But when you get worried about your worries that you can't address, things get a lot, uh, a lot more impairing pretty quickly. And so how do you treat that? Well, one thing is being aware of the worries that you can't address and the worries that you, you can. But, so what about the worry that, let's start with the first one. I, I work in a job that I like, it's fine, but it's not directly related to climate change. So I, uh, I, I'm feeling anxious, like I'm not doing enough. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think at that point we can, we could explore options. What could you do, right? What would be in your, in your realm of behavioral options? That's the thing. I don't feel like I yeah. don't have any options. Like, what am I going to do? I'm going to. I, I could go vegetarian, but that's like a, a, that's a drop in the bucket. You know, I, yeah, I could vote. That's another drop in the bucket, but what could I, what could I really do? Like, I want to fight, you know, right, when yeah. we, when we used to feel like we, there was a cause worth fighting for, we would literally go fight for it. We would literally go to war and we exert all our strength. We put everything on the line for it. We put our lives on the line and we fight blood, sweat and tears. Yeah. Now it's like I, I, I can vote or I can just eat less meat. So one, I think one thing that probably would come up with eco-anxiety a lot is this kind of either or thinking, right? Like either we all fight blood, sweat, and tears or nothing's worth doing. And I think that that is not a functional way of thinking about it, right? Like there is a, there is value in incremental change, mm-hmm. uh, right? If we're... Uh, slowing down <laughs> the devastating effects of climate change by changing norms about diets that mm-hmm. that might be a step in the right direction mm-hmm. right so I, I think it's it's not totally logical to wholesale dismiss strategies that don't like immediately uh resolve the problem because they're they're also uh I don't think that 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 exists. There isn't a a way that we know of that could. Mm -hmm. How do you treat anxiety typically? Forget eco-anxiety. How do you treat uncertainty, intolerance, and anxiety? It really depends on the person and what they're. We'll give give a single example. Uh, So one really common way of treating anxiety is to help people approach the thing that they're anxious about. So when we're talking, if we're talking about social anxiety, we, mm-hmm. we talked about avoidance, reinforcing the anxiety, right? You decide not to go to a party and stay home and right. read your book. You have a good experience. But improvisational reading. theater, you confront it. The only way to overcome fear is face fear itself. That's kinda. yeah. That, uh, that's Ethos. a big thing. Yeah. So kind of what this podcast is climate change therapy. Yeah. I, I do. I, I mean, are you trying to get me to uh, prescribe climate change therapy to, to kind of? Yeah, I, I heard this new podcast. If you're feeling eco anxiety, you can listen to it. Can I tell you what my the main driver of my eco anxiety is? Yeah, 
it's not necessarily hurricanes or wildfires or bushfires, but I think it's the fact that we realize how big of a problem this is, but yet so many other people don't realize that and they don't, they vote for the candidates that don't even believe it exists and how our, the government just does absolutely nothing. Like the anxiety is kind of, it's political in a way. The ego anxiety is, I feel like this is the problem that the government needs to step in and, you know, regulate the fossil fuel companies and say, we got to phase this out. And it's amazing that that, to me, that that hasn't happened yet. Yeah. I mean, that hasn't happened yet. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with you. There are uh, some things that are happening, right, that are worth celebrating. New York State starting to ban plastic bags, right? That's <laughs> really, really minor incremental change. Uh, I think the worry about government inaction uh, is an example of something where uh, you're giving agency to uh, the external world and you're moving it away from yourself. And that move coupled with worry is, is uh, generally not going to mm-hmm. uh, resolve the worry. Right? Yeah, it's funny how you, sp- you sp- spoke of uncertainty in evolutionary terms before. And you know, the example you used was like a rustle in the woods. But what's interesting about that, evolutionarily speaking, is that that uncertainty and that anxiety was rooted in our personal experience and the world as we experienced it with the five senses. And yeah. those are the five senses which we've evolved. And now the uncertainty and the anxiety is is not our personal experience, but it's our personal engagement with culture, this other yeah. kind of this world that goes that's different from our own experience you know there's nothing well, it's collective in my, experience too i think but it but it's not a, it's not a collective experience you know it's like it's a it's it's things that are happening in other parts of the the world like outs that you're not yeah. experiencing with your senses it's things you're reading about or hearing about that you're getting that you're anxious about the coronavirus right. and, in china yeah, yeah. Well, the wildfires and that's about globalization, in right? Australia. That's about globalization. Early on, it's it's you and your family, and then it's your tribe, and then it's your civilization, and now it's we're all interconnected. Right. So there's a lot more to be anxious about, and the 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 rustle in the in the woods. You're always going to notice that over the birds chirping. You know, there, there's going to be birds chirping and then there's a rustle in the woods and yeah. that's what you notice. Yep. So you're, you're right to say like, there's a lot of good things happening. Um, yeah. Pla- plastic bag bannings, but, and that's just one of a, of a thousand, maybe mi- millions of things that are happening. Yeah. And people have a, have a bias to attend more to the negative things and potentially threatening things. Right. right. And it's also the rustle in the woods. Like that's also, that's news, you know? So the new the news it seems like there's a lot more bad news than good news, 
Um, and and again, like that bad move, that rustle in the woods, it, it could be a predator that's going to kill you. So like it, it it's Let's news for a reason. It's yeah. news for a reason. Yeah. Um, yeah, but they, it, it is interesting to think about that in yeah, they, evolution. You, you can think about it too in, in terms of uh, technology, right? Like you'd rather have a smoke detector set set off its alarm uh, with false positives rather than false negatives. Right, like that yeah. that bias continues to have some function in a lot of cases. Right, you you it's better to look both ways when you cross the road uh, mm-hmm. every time than none of the time. Even though maybe most of the time you'd be fine. Yeah, um, expanding on the the evolutionary theme, I want to kind of move on <laughs> to, but still sticking with ang- within the realm of ego anxiety, I want to discuss about. Um, about kids and education, because a lot of, a lot of what the eco anxiety is occurring in in the youth of today, who see this as a problem that's going to affect them, and they're not going to live up to the the quality of life that, you know that that their parents had or their grandparents had. They're they're basically going to have to clean up the mess of the baby boom generation and our generation. Um, so, hmm. We I, we exchanged a few articles um, earlier in the week. Um, one was from from the Washington Post, and one was from the Guardian. Uh, but I'll I'll just the, the from the Guardian it, it's called uh, overwhelming and terrifying: the rise of climate anxiety. Experts concerned young people's mental health, particularly hit by reality of the climate crisis. This is from the Guardian, and it's from a couple weeks ago. Um, but at the end of the article, we're just going to skip all the way down to it. It just mentioned some advice for parents. Um, so I'll just read the, the headings of this advice for parents, and then we can kind of react to, to them. Um, so the first one is remember that you do not need to be a climate expert, right? Um, and you can kind of say like that, acknowledge that's a good question, you know, son, daughter, that's a good question, and let's look look into it together, and we'll research it. We'll learn about this together. Yeah. Um, the next one is to try to validate rather than minimize children's emotions. So you can say, like, it's better to say, it's okay to feel worried. Yeah. You know, th- this is what we can do about it. But it's better to acknowledge that and validate them than say, don't worry. It's not a problem. Right, because the, the, uh, when you do that, then they get worried about their own worry, and that's that's building up that cycle we talked about earlier. Vicious cycle, yeah. yeah. And then they feel like they're something's wrong with them. Yeah, exactly. The third one is, this is what we kind of just talked about, where negative information hits harder, right? The rustle in the woods is always louder than the birds chirping. Um, so just have some examples of good news ready to kind of counteract. So... You can still share the bad news, yeah. but also know that there's there's both sides. There's yeah. there's good intentions as well, um, and that they're not alone. In you know that the, there are good guys in this. There are good guys in this story. There are heroes yeah, a lot to of root organizers. For. Yeah, there are champions. Um, thir- the fourth is for younger children. Keep it local and tangible. Talk about recycling things like that. Um, picking up litter. Yeah. Um, not wasting things, uh, food, trash, um, plastics, uh, uh, for teen for teenagers, they say, uh, you know, encourage them to, to write to their, um, their elected officials, 
you know, take part in protests, join clubs. Um, and then the fifth is set, set practical goals as a family, you know, to kind of record on like the fridge door, like recycle day or, or, you know, did, did, did not eat great. beef for this. Yeah. So that, that's, that's good. That's, and that's advice for parents. Um, but I also want to talk about, cause the other article, the, the Washington post article called the environmental burden of generation Z kids are terrified, anxious, depressed about climate change. Whose fault is that sort of explored more the schools and how climate change is being taught in the schools yeah. and you know, eco anxiety. It's too, it, it's too broad to kind of have it be a diagnosable thing in by psychologist in the guidance department because it's something that really everyone is experiencing, and you you also don't want to stigmatize in a certain way. But how how do you think climate change should be taught in the schools? Uh, I mean, that's really open ended. I'm not a climate expert, so I, I'm nervous about responding to that. I, right, let me just yeah. rephrase the question. Do you have any memory? We went to the same high school. We're brothers. Yeah. You're two years younger than I am. Do you have any memories? 20 months. 21 months. Do you have any memories at, um, in, in high school or no, whatever? No, I, I have no experience. About change? I, I don't remember anything in our curriculum about climate change. Anything even indirectly related? Uh, like I remember learning about Earth Day and recycling course, and stuff course. like that. But yeah, you're right. There was more about global warming. Yeah, it was. That was more. I thought about just not being wasteful as a as a virtue, <laughs> and less yeah. about threats of. Uh, yeah, I certainly didn't did not know anything about how um, how beef was so had such an ecological footprint. I don't think I even knew the word ecology. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I knew like Al Gore came out with the inconvenient yeah, truth yeah, yeah. in 2004, but the day after tomorrow was that movie with, was it Kevin Costner or Dennis Quaid? I always get those confused, but I the whole, I saw that in the theater and the whole, I think it was New York city, but it was weird because the climate change, the, the effect of climate change was snow everywhere. It was just a, like a little different from what I had envisioned. It was like, mm. yeah, it was like the, uh, the ice caps melted and now it was snowing everywhere. I don't know. <laughs> you think of global warming, you think something pretty different, but yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I definitely also have great memories of snow mm -hmm. growing up and having school off, but I, I don't remember thinking like oh, this is related to climate change. Mm -hmm. Um, how would, how do you think eco anxiety would manifest in you? If you were a kid in in high school now, so in twenty twenty, because they are they are talking about climate change in school. You said you yeah. were talking to me about some statistic about two thirds of kids. Were well, well, yeah. One of the articles you sent me said uh, two thirds of the teachers in their survey, and again, we don't know the base rate of like whether they're science teachers or not, but they don't talk about the human impact uh, on climate change. They don't talk about climate change as human caused. Two thirds. Two two thirds. I'm pretty sure. Uh, okay, but yeah. and that but or, that two thirds. Or, yeah, that might that might include the one third that don't talk about climate change at all. Maybe I don't know. I didn't. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't go to the source paper. I just read the article you sent me. 
Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, some some of these facts are are tricky to figure out. We've we've had a segment <laughs> on here called climate change facts that we don't really un, you know it's like you know, some x amount of gallons of water that takes to make one <laughs> glass of orange juice. I like, like that segment. Does that include the rain that took to grow the tree <laughs> to grow the orange, or does it just include the water that you mix the pulp with? Or yeah, it'd be nice if they were a bit more transparent with how they make those calculations. <laughs> yeah. Well, data, it's, it's used to drive arguments at the end of the day. Um, but so if you were a kid today in school, um, how do you think eco-anxiety would manifest in you? And how would you want climate change to be taught in your classes? I think the more information... And the more complete information, the better, right? One one of the articles you sent me talked about a University of Michigan professor who asked students to report about their experience after her lecture on climate change. And I think it was 4% said that, uh, you know, the future will hold a uh, an appropriate response to climate change. And then she adjusted her teaching to include a bit more about possible solutions and uh, like incremental okay. efforts to reduce. So a balance the, between good news, bad news. Well, I would, yeah. I, I mean, I, I do stand by the more information, the better. Yeah. Right. I, I, I wouldn't want, uh, here are all the threats. Go to soccer practice now. <laughs> I don't think that would be an effective. I really uh, don't think you'd play curriculum. twice as hard. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think I would want a, a, I want to, I would want to get a sense of the landscape of, of what information is out there and what sources to go to, to get more information and what to do locally to organize. I think. So like local organizations, how you could contact your elected official, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I'd want to see like clubs, uh, where you you could join with other students who are are interested in writing local officials. Are you in any clubs now related to climate change or organizations? I mean, my postdoc at the Aldo Center has, I have a person I share an office with who's writing curriculum to help climate scientists communicate about climate change. And so I, I feel wow. like while I'm not directly doing that, I mean, I'm in proximity to that and that it feels good. Wow. And what is in that curriculum? Is it similar? Is it just like, is it reading and discussion of things? Is it? Well, it's, a, it's, a, it's about communication. So what I know of it, and I I'm definitely haven't experienced it or anything, um, but they talk about, you know, the, the, the plural public and how there are some uh, communities that are so resistant to anything related to talking about climate change. It's maybe not really worth communicating with. There's some people who are already totally on board that, again, it's maybe the, the efforts could be focused on, um, you know, people who might share values with climate activists, mm-hmm. um, and maybe need to have conversations that are in different terms. Um, so it's, it's, it's really about communication, that mm-hmm. curriculum. Yeah. Um, but okay. again, I don't know the specifics. Hmm. All right. And how would you treat eco trauma? So, we're talking about anxiety yeah. and then we're talking about the difference between eco-anxiety, eco-fatigue. Eco-fatigue, I think the, the treatment is to is a little, here's good news, here's what you can do. Um, 
but ego trauma is like for people who have been traumatized by wildfires, say, like say, say you were a teacher or, or, or a, th- a therapist and you met someone who had just moved, was new to the city and, and they're moving from f- Florida after a hurricane or they're moving uh, from California after a wildfire. Yeah. And they're getting settled. You know, how would you, how would you talk to them? I mean, I'd want to know about their experience. I'd be curious about what. So you would confront that experience. Well, it's up to them. I, I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't want to, I wouldn't force them into a conversation they're not ready to have. But if, well, if, if it, if an experience like that being in proximity to mm-hmm. the wildfires continues to affect them so much that they seek out therapy, mm-hmm. they might be motivated to talk about it. And I would want to create a space where they could do that. So in, in college, I, I did some tutoring work study and one of the kids, um, he was, he, he was, he was very sort of hard to control, let's say. And then I was told a few days in that he, um, he'd come over from Haiti and he had experienced Haitian earthquake. This was the early part of the 2000s and at a, at a young age, like age three. And during the earthquake, he was alone. Wow. And then his like, like his family like ran out and had to run back to get him. So he has these kind of like separation anxiety and f- feelings of abandonment and being alone. And mm-hmm. you know, he's... You know, needing attention and just like worry. You know, he's just kind of all over the place, like smiling, but also really hard to kind of control. Um, but that's a kind of eco trauma, in a way. So, what what sort of traumas do you think come with displacement at at different ages? Also, these traumas, it's important to say, are they they manifest themselves differently at different ages? If someone's three versus if someone's 13 or 23 yeah um so how is the trauma from a wildfire different from the trauma from a hurricane different from the trauma from an earthquake different from the trauma of a flood or tsunami um hmm. (laughs) so i i mean maybe it's easier to start with what is uh common between those experiences Right, like, what are we calling trauma? And let, let's say, let's say, you know, thirteen-year-old. Uh, right, thirteen-year-old who has lost their home due to one of these events. What are these events? How, how does tra- How does the trauma manifest itself? It could be in so many different ways. It's like it's. I'm struggling to say, like, just tell you because I. All right. What are some yeah. of the different ways that it could manifest itself? <laughs> I think in general, uh, trauma is processed first in like the body and the unconscious experience. Uh, okay. Because often it is events that we're not really prepared for. Okay. How so? Uh, Let's I mean, take, so. for example, a, hur- a hurricane. Yeah. A 13-year-old. Yeah. Loses their home in a hurricane. How is trauma manifested? How is trauma manifested? Yeah. Well, uh, so symptoms are like yes. flashbacks. Please. Right? You might have uh, flashbacks. You might be especially sensitive to water. Uh, you might have fears related to your experience 
of the, that hurricane that come up, you know, weeks, months, years later. Hmm. Interesting. So sensitivity to water. So that's Could be. obviously different from sensitivity to wildfire. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, like the things that might inspire those flashbacks, I think, would be related mm. to the events. Have you ever had a flashback? I've never, I don't know that I've ever had a flashback. Like, I mean, I've, I've had things that triggered memories. Is that the same as flashback? Uh, like, how do psychologists view flashbacks? And how are flashbacks different from memories that are triggered? Uh, well, one thing is, is like the, uh, I think the, with flashbacks related to trauma, I think there's the experience of them as unpleasant and the inability to, uh, control them, uh, or regulate them. Right. Okay. Whereas maybe your experience of flashbacks is often related to a mix of okay. pleasant memories. And, and I think flashbacks related to traumas are going to be, they're going to have a more consistent through line. So flashbacks right? are, you, are negative. If they're related to the trauma. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Right. Like if, yeah. if, if someone experiences a rape and it's a specific site, it's a, it's a specific site that they remember everything about. Not necessarily. Yeah. It could be related, right? Yeah. If, like if someone experiences a rape, they're, they, when someone surprises them by touching their shoulder out of view, that right. might upset them and bring back memory, like yeah. memories. And that, suddenly like, they, but they, but you usually, you'll, it's, it's like with trauma, sometimes you, you remember every detail of it, but also sometimes you, you block it out or you black out. Yeah. I think, uh, uh definitely happens where in the immediate aftermath of yeah. the trauma, you like, because the, that one explanation is your, um, your unconscious makes some determination that, that, uh, for your own survival, not experiencing this, uh, directly is better. It, it and is in that moment. It yeah. might be in some cases. It is. Right? It is interesting though, to think that, that certain traumas, you remember every detail and certain traumas you black out. What kind of traumas are more frequently you black out versus versus what kind of traumas do you always remember? That should be something you study now as a postdoc. No, no, I can't know. study. I don't know. I, 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 I'm asking you questions that I know you don't know. Yeah, I know yeah. you don't know the answer, but they're they're interesting questions. Yeah, I would guess if I'm like just if we're just spitballing here and and you're recognizing that I'm not an expert in these things, I would guess that the traumas that people have really detailed memories of, vivid memories of, are ones where they have more control in the situation. So like a soldier who has to kill someone for the first time. I would guess that they would remember that more. They'd be more likely to remember that than uh, an experience that, that, that is driven by something out of their control. But I don't know. I, I really don't know. That's a, no, that's a, a very interesting point. Yeah. Like they, they remember killing somebody, but maybe they remember less a time where they're you know, running from gunfire and right. someone was shot or yeah. something. And, right. 
Yeah, yeah. they blocked it out, but they still have that memory, so it keeps popping back as a flashback. Who knows? Um, (laughs) On that note of personal trauma, um, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about our personal experiences of growing up together under the same roof for many, many years. Okay, welcome back to Climate Change Therapy. Thanks for bearing with us through that instrumental break. Um, I'm, before the break, we were speaking about personal traumas. And at that note, being that I'm here with my, my brother, uh, Peter, who's in town visiting from uh, Stony Brook, where he's doing his postdoc. And now we're in Philadelphia. I'm a city planner. We're in Philadelphia. I'm a city guy now. I know you're living in the burbs. You've always been a city guy. I'm a city guy. But... Speaking of personal trauma, we grew up together under the same roof in the suburbs. Yeah. So I want to talk about some of our memories, <laughs> not growing up in nature, surrounded in, you know, in the mountains, surrounded by an abundance of, of, you know, forest and land, but also not growing up in the inner city where there was, where we didn't have a backyard to dig up worms in, um, but growing up in the suburbs is kind of in between zone, and also yeah. suburbs the, the the area that's contributing to sprawl and automobile culture mm-hmm. and uh, and climate change, right? Driving and ultimately climate change. Um, big houses you have to heat and cool, yep. right? So, how do we feel about the connection with nature we have developed, having grown up in the suburbs? What are some of our memories? Um, with nature as suburban kids. Um, I'll, I'll name one. Sure. I remember our first house we had, I think we spent probably more time in the backyard. There was a basketball hoop in the driveway. There was also a decent sized yard. We had a soccer goal. We had a swing set in our backyard. Yep. Um, we also had some wooded areas in our backyard. Yeah, we had had one little tree that kind of, uh, sloped like, over that you could go in like yeah, a clubhouse kind of yeah, yeah. that yeah, was not, sweet it wasn't quite a tree it was more like a bush yeah but it was like, it was like a weeping willow kind of willow-esque bush. yeah exactly but not a weeping willow because it right, wasn't right, a tree right. but it was like a bush that being kids we could kind of crawl yeah you know? when, yeah um so you know we and we had like a wooded area behind the swing set too yep a small small wooded area because there was a then there was a fence in the next neighbor's lot yeah I would say we did not have a big backyard, really, but we had a, you know, I don't, it seemed normal to me because your own experience always seems normal to you. <laughs> I mean, as, yeah, as a kid, it's, it definitely didn't feel small in my experience. It didn't feel small, but it also didn't feel big. Like we had friends who had lawns that were much bigger. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, like the Hirschbergs and. Right. Yeah. Um, a lot of people had bigger backyards, but. Um, like I remember gathering sticks in our backyard and making a pile. I remember digging up worms and cutting them in half (laughs) and making two worms. I was like playing God. I was like matchmaker. You know, it's like, Oh, this one worm can have sex with itself and become two worms. Yeah. Um, which is unbelievable that worms can do that by the way. Worms Armageddon shout out. It's best game on Sega Dreamcast of all time. Yeah. 
Which we um, didn't play till later. Brucey's heroes yeah. all day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the homing pigeon. Yes. That was my weapon, the ninja rope. Thank you, Andrew Bregman, At for bazooka. introducing us to that game. <laughs> yeah. First on the computer, then we found on Dreamcast. But in any case, outdoors. <laughs> we're talking about outdoors. Uh, yes. yeah, yeah, we didn't have cable TV till we were 10. I think that helped. You know, we had neighbors that we liked to play outdoors with. Yeah. Water gun fights, using magnifying glass to burn little army men. And yeah, we and we we actually like a month ago revisited that area and saw like our neighbor's hill that we used to sled down, which is yeah, it's like three feet tall, three now. feet drop, <laughs> three feet tall, six feet long. <laughs> yeah, we had a tree in our front yard. We would climb. Yeah, we would climb like three, four branches, three up. or four branches. Yeah, but it was, and our it was a tree. We hugged, cousin, we we hugged some trees. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and planted actually. I remember, I remember our dad like planting a tree in the front yard. A different tree, yeah, yeah. That, that grew pretty big. Grew pretty big, pretty quick. Um, he also had a, I think, a very small garden of like a tomato plant and a basil <laughs> thing. Yeah, a there were a, a few side. little, and the in the back of the house, as well. Yeah, like by attached to the garage, there was yeah. a few, a very small of... and mostly unsuccessful, and you and I were not involved. <laughs> <laughs> no, we didn't really plant anything. Yeah, I remember we made a trampoline out of a tire and a a, a wooden board. <laughs> what? Yeah, there was like a I, wooden. I there was a wooden board we found from like there was a broken desk or something, and we took like the wooden the desk part. We took that off the chair, and it fit perfectly onto a tire. And we put the board on the tire and we lowered the basketball hoop to like seven feet and we went, we ran with the basketball <laughs> and, and we, we had this like black street basketball. Um, and we, I think it was like Spalding NBA street, but basketball was like black with like purple lines and blue lines on. And we would run like a football ball carrier, wouldn't even dribble. And we would jump on this desk board that was on this tire and then we'd dunk. But anyway, yeah, we, we wanted to talk about we nature. Were, we were mostly very careless, very lucky kids. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that definitely very fortunate to be in, in good health right now. Um, but we also, we caught fireflies. We caught bugs in the backyard. We, I feel like we caught a few yeah, beetles. Fireflies big time, like at the soccer field was a thing. I remember going into the reservation, uh, more often on holidays that was more like a getting ready for yeah. the jewish new year ritual we'd walk to the waterfall yeah but in our in our backyard we we definitely played around in the grass a little bit yeah soccer yeah being in nature what Mostly about basketball street hockey street hockey front. so i guess this isn't really nature it's, not really it's nature. more this recreation just... <laughs> it's yeah. more record but i do feel like digging up worms, summer camp, like you le- we did Lake. learn things and we had we had pets yeah but, um, I had frogs you had, you had one frog oh god can you please tell the story about your frog uh, live on air this sure, is fantastic. i got a a mail order f- a frog that was supposed to come as a tadpole but the mail in those days uh took a long time I think I got it for my birthday. It was late. And when it arrived... It came in an envelope, right? I think it came in a small package. And when it arrived, it jumped out of the package, a full frog. And you caught it, though? Yeah, eventually we got it. Was there water in the package? There must have been. It must have been a little... I don't remember. Honestly, some of this memory is just mom's retelling. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, eventually got it. And it, it lived with us for like 12 years or something. 
It lived a long time. A really long time. It was you also never changed shape. the water. I was tank. not a good... And you uh, also... You fed it yeah. once, accidentally. You, you, I mean, I think you fed it the first couple of weeks you had. But at some point, lot. you accidentally knocked... Yeah. You knocked the the feed for it in the thing, and the whole package of yeah, yeah. a feed for like a year yeah, it, it ate fell well. in, and it like ate it all, and then you didn't feed it, it again for like, well. for like ten years until you let it free. It never it never died in our possession. You let it, you freed it in the duck pond. Yeah, Brian was a healthy probably, healthy frog. It's and probably still alive. You know when I, Brian's out there. Brian's out there. You think? In the South Mountain, South Orange Middle School. Uh, <laughs> I think so. That was a mutant frog. That was a mutant frog. I think I remember the day we released Brian into the glorious wild of the duck pond. Yeah, kind uh, of trauma. I talked to our uncle Bobby, who said he's probably dead by now. <laughs> like that same day. <laughs> that same day. <laughs> uh, yeah, but maybe maybe it was the right thing to do. I think so. Anyway, yeah. We had, uh, I um, had hamsters, was kind of our, my first pet. Yep. And I, macaroni. I, macaroni. Macaroni. I had that hamster that had 12 kids. Cool. It had the little hamster runts that started eating. I think original, and then, originally, hams, uh, macaroni was picked out because the pet person told you it was a, not going to have kids. It was a male, yeah. Mom really didn't want to get a female hamster <laughs> because she didn't want to risk buying a hamster that had been impregnated in the pet shop. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, macaroni. Yeah. One night we were all in my room playing yeah. Battleship or something, and uh, yep. yeah, I was like, "Mom, he's pregnant." Yep. Um, and there were twelve runs. There were these little like pink things and under macaroni. Macaroni ate most of them. Yeah, you gotta because uh, I mean, that's how that's how it happens. That's why you have twelve, yep. but six I think survived, and I sold four to friends. Wow. Maybe seven survived. I sold six to friends. Uh, but I gave you one, and I kept one. Mm. I kept one, and the one I gave you had really like long rats. There was something wrong with it. Mm. The one I gave you, there was something wrong. With. Do you remember claws. that? I don't. No, it had like long like hair that was like mm. re- like. I don't remember. I do remember most you... of the hamster's hair was very smooth, but your hamster's hair was like mm. like it was knotty. Thanks. It was like long Thanks and for knotty. Giving that one to me. Head. It was like a, kind of a Rastafarian. <laughs> Looks like it's all there. Like dr- long dreads. I will say I was much better with the hamster than the frog. The hamster I would take out of the cage, make little mazes out of uh, wooden blocks. Yeah, the frog you just ignored. The hamster no, you the played frog with. I fed. It's just you but can't. I, I also take think the your hamster was, was blind. It was. Yeah, the maze was difficult. But we had <laughs> fun together. Difficult. We had fun. Um, my the hamsters I had the macaroni, the mom, and the one. Uh, one hamster kid that I kept. I don't know if it was a boy or girl. I wouldn't be able to tell those things. Um, but they they got knocked down one one day when we got by down. by Marlo, our dog. We had a dog at a certain point. We this always had to story. Yeah, we always had to close the. But it it um it shows our connection to nature. Let's say. But I had to uh, close the door when we went to the pool. But one day I left it open accidentally. Marlo knocked down the hamster cage. Um, when we got home, uh, Marlo opened her mouth and macaroni was dead and she left it at mom's, presented it at mom's feet as an, as an offering, as a sign of, you know, thank you for feeding me. Here's a hamster for your troubles. Yeah. Marlo is such a sweet dog. (laughs) Yeah. Rest in peace. Um, and then, uh, the, uh, but the, the kid, I named him uh, Yankee or her Yankee. I couldn't tell the sex, but was running around in my room. 
our, our house right. missing for a week. And then I found it. Wow. And it had like tripled in size. Wow. And like all my clothes had been like eaten. It was like eating my clothes and my stuffed animals behind my, wow. behind my like wardrobe or something. <laughs> Super whatever. hamster. Yeah. yeah. But I lived another couple of years. Like yeah. it went strong. I think we also had hermit crabs. That was maybe the last, uh, Yes, Other we pet. had hermit crabs. I think your hermit crab was also blind, but there's something wrong with it. Armstrong. Armstrong. R.I.P. That was your hermit crab? Yeah. It's a good name for a hermit crab. I had a shell that would that was went out uh, horizontally, like a long ways. It, it looked, resembled kind of like an arm. Now, hermit crabs, they grow their own shells, right? But they also... Hop into new shells. Hop into new shells. Crazy. I don't do they Ima- grow their own <laughs> Imagine if like when I grew up I like hopped into like you know like dad's old body. Or yeah. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> Very odd. Yeah. But these are old creatures. Hermit crabs are well, crustaceans are older than mammals for sure. Yeah. Way older. Hmm. Yeah. All right. So let's connection talk about, to nature. Yeah. I guess yeah, pl- places we went to outside our house. More summer camp. I think summer stuff we would get out in the nature more. That was nice. You, what did you remember? Like the lake. I remember the lake. I remember uh, at camp we would do like uh, there was an elective to do an overnight hike somewhere that I never did, but I remember that that yeah there was a ridge hike. We, we had a ridge hike. To the ridge. It was we, like you basically everything. an all day event. What was the most Somehow. beautiful thing in nature that you saw as a kid? Mm-hmm. How old, what at what age does kid stop in in this scenario? Um, before before <laughs> before you ha- uh, had your first kiss. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> before you became uh, a man. Maybe the, but the my favorite experience was maybe the. Uh, The ridge hike, the ridge hike. Yeah, yeah. I remember also going to um, when we we had a summer where we spent a week on Lake Champlain up in Vermont. Yeah, Uh, I forget how old I was then, maybe eleven. But it was beautiful, and we we kayaked for for hours, and it was this this lake that just never ended, and you see the other side, and it was just like this whole other world. It was like Middle Earth, like Lord of the Rings, right. Um, it was the, the largest beautiful. lake outside of the the, the Great, Great Lakes. Lakes, and yeah, that was yeah. at a time in my life before I had I'd never been seen the Great Lakes any of the Great time. Lakes. Yeah, so that was the biggest lake I'd ever seen. Same, and there there wasn't much development along it at yeah, all. And you gorgeous. saw the mountains across the lake; there were reflections in the waters. Yeah. Beautiful. And then also, our first trip out of the country, we went to Costa Rica, and we didn't right. go to the beach; we went to the rainforest. So <laughs> yeah. we, we we saw howler monkeys. Those big old balls. Yeah. Most beautiful thing in nature I've seen. Those big old balls of the howler monkeys. Wow. No, um, but, yeah, I mean, that was pretty amazing. Rara Avis and the streams. Yeah. The volcano. Yeah. How about most beautiful thing in nature you've seen as an adult? Um, I loved the first time I saw uh, Chapel Rock. Where's that? It's on Lake Superior. Upper Peninsula? Upper Peninsula, yeah. 
Chapel Rock. Chapel what, Rock. Can you please describe it? It's part of a um, park that I'm blanking on, on the name of Picture Rocks National Park. Okay. Uh, so on the Lake Superior coast, kind of north side of the peninsula, there are rock formations where uh, the water over the years formed all these interesting colors and patterns and uh, shapes in the land. And at one point, there's uh if you're hiking along the coastline there's a rock formation off the coastline with a single tree on it that also has roots on the mainland and mm-hmm. it's just gorgeous just to just to see this these trees kind the of tree in that's, the that's rooted on this offshore rock formation that also has roots on the mainland so its roots are kind of forming a bridge. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. That was incredible. Have you ever... I, I, I really want to go to the Upper Peninsula. That sounds amazing. It's beautiful. Have you ever been to the Redwood Forest? I have not. Me neither. We should go. All right. Yeah. I've What's the most eco-friendly way to get there? <laughs> Walking. <laughs> All right. That'd be an epic walk, bro. Let's do it. Yeah, no, I really want to want to go there. Yeah, that's a good same. that's a good idea. That's a good trip. Maybe when you graduate your postdoc, I don't know. It's graduate's a job, not so the word. Graduate's yeah. not the word. So when you get fired, <laughs> maybe when you get fired from your postdoc, we'll celebrate <laughs> your freedom. Great. <laughs> um, so, do you think those experiences with nature? Do you think they were sufficient in you in developing a sense of respect for nature, or do you think that they're not as strong as they should be? Because you grew up in the suburbs and didn't maybe grow up in the mountains. Like, do you think you had an inadequate experience with nature or do you think you had more than, you know, you need to appreciate it? Or do you think uh, you didn't have enough? Uh, I think it's, I think it's, it's really relative. Yeah. I think I met a lot of people in Michigan when I was living there for 10 years who had, who are way more connected to nature than I okay. grew up being. And through them, I, got closer to nature okay and, i've definitely never had that experience because i've been in cities since right. the suburbs yeah so you've about gotten closer to nature yeah right. i spent a good amount of time go, yeah. uh, going around michigan camping right being on different farms right um, you've killed a chipmunk with your feet and ate it it's not something i'm uh, proud of <laughs> i'm proud of it that's one of the things i'm most proud of <laughs> you in your life um okay i think maybe it's time for First, seg- first segment. Now. Sounds good. <laughs> we talked a little bit about our, our life growing up. Um, so we, when it's hard to talk about climate change in this day and age without also talking politics. And I know we, it, we as as depressing as climate change can be, politics can often be just as uh, right. depressing. But this is a very important time for climate change and for politics with the democratic. Uh, you know, uh, Super Tuesday is coming up. Yep. And we have a bunch of candidates. Last night, we were hanging out with my mom. We played kind of this game. I created this framework here on Block Radius <laughs> where you rank each uh, candidate, each Democratic candidate, on a scale of 1 to 10 in five different categories. So these categories are how would you rate this person, whether it's Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klomachar, Mike Bloomberg, or Tom Steyer? As a boss, as a coworker, as a sibling, as a parent, and as a friend. And you average all those ratings one to ten out. 
So we played this game last night, and Peter, with your results, you basically ended up having a three-way tie at the top. Oh, Bernie came out ahead. Bernie came out ahead by one point. Uh, Bernie Sanders, his average was a 7.6. And then you had Biden and Warren with 7.5. That's right. Which surprised you. You thought maybe you would have Biden. Um, I thought Warren would be ahead of Biden, yeah. Yeah. Um, Did you think you would have Bernie first? Yeah. Okay. Well, it's basically a three-way tie. And in fact, you were going to say give Bernie a certain grade in one of the categories, and then you bump that up a point. I think but it, if you hadn't bumped that point up last second, he would have been your third choice, not your first choice. Right. I think I bumped him up from a six to a seven as a sibling, something like yeah, that. Yeah, I think that's accurate. <laughs> but we're going to just um, go with these top three, and we're going to try to sort it out right now Uh-oh. and just, just do this over again <laughs> and see if a clear favorite can emerge. And I'm going to ask you these questions randomly. So I'm not, for example, I'm not going to say Bernie is a boss. Biden is a boss. Warren is a boss. Okay. Bernie is a coworker. Right. Biden is a coworker. Warren is a coworker. This is still I'm going to be random. So you Great. really have to isolate each individual question. <laughs> okay. So Peter. Sure. Brother. Yes. Two years younger than me. Hank. 21 months older than me. 20 months older than me. <laughs> 21 months younger than me. How would you rate Elizabeth Warren? Okay. As a parent. As a parent. Scale of one to ten. Eight. Peter, brother, how would you rate Bernie Sanders as a coworker? Seven. How would you rate Joe Biden as a boss? Seven. Eh, six. <laughs> Why? Why did you drop him from a seven to six there? I think I I'm uh, I'm nerve. I I don't think he's as smart as I would want my boss to be. Okay. Yeah. Um. And what? Why did you rate Elizabeth Warren as an eight for parent? Because I think she would be, she would attract friends that I would like my parents to be friends with. And uh, she's really smart and I think would be pretty clear about uh, explaining why rules are structured in certain ways and also uh, help me. She'd be pretty good at helping me think through problems. Sure. Yeah. Bernie, as a coworker, you said seven. Why? Um, I think <laughs> this is so silly. I think uh, he would advocate <laughs> for his coworkers, and and, and uh, that's great. I think day to day he might advocate for coworkers at the expense of our jobs getting done. Say and, no more. And like yeah. Ber- Bernie as a boss. Bernie as a boss, I would say. Oof, nine or ten. So you, you said as a coworker, he would advocate for people at the expense of work getting done, but as a boss, he's nine or ten. Yeah. Okay, we'll give you a nine point five. Why? Why would Bernie be a better boss than a coworker? <laughs> uh, well, I think I am often likely to agree with his vision. Okay. And I think that's really important in a boss. And I, I think as a coworker his vision would 
come in disagreement with our shared boss. Okay. And that might force me to like have to socially manage those relationships in ways that get in the way of getting work done. So an interesting kind of comparison to this. You said Bernie <laughs> was a 9.5 as a boss. How about Bernie as a parent? Uh, hmm. I think a nine. I think last night I gave him a 10. <laughs> and then I felt shame about wanting Bernie to be my dad. <laughs> okay. I'll give him a nine. <laughs> How about uh, Elizabeth Warren as a coworker? Uh, here I'll say nine. Okay. Why? Uh, again, she seems smart and motivated and like a really hard worker. Great. Elizabeth Warren as a friend? Nine. Okay. So you like those qualities and friends. Yeah. yeah, I think that's good. It's fair. Joe Biden as a friend. Uh, I think you remember, 7.5. just to remind you, you gave Joe Biden a six as a boss because you didn't think he was <laughs> smart enough. 7.5 friend. Yeah. Yeah. 7.58. I'm not sure. Okay. Well, I'll give you a 7.5. 7. Yeah. 7.75. Sounds good. <laughs> um, it's a long segment. Biden as a sibling. Biden as a sibling will go nine. Great. Warren as a boss. Warren as a boss, I'll say eight. These are all above average grades, by the way, which is expected. These are your top three. Yeah. Uh, Biden as a coworker. Uh you can get a drink with him after work, you be in a brainstorm meeting with him. You could delegate work to him, he could delegate work to you. You could Yeah, seven point five strategize. Seven, yeah. Okay. Seven point five, you said? Yeah. Okay. Elizabeth Warren. No, you know what? Bernie Sanders as a sibling. Oh, uh, let's say 8.5. 8.5? Why? I think... Uh, for comparison's sake, you put Biden as a 9 for siblings. Yeah. So why is Biden a better sibling than Bernie? Um, I think... Again, there's like a... But you also... Yeah, yeah. okay, go on, go on. I think again with, with Bernie, there's as a sibling, mm -hmm. there's like the potential for maybe unnecessary disruption okay. in certain cases or like calling attention to himself where like I, I want a little attention as a sibling. Sure. And, and uh, this is, this is yeah. fairly consistent because the closest thing probably to sibling... Well, maybe not. I mean, it's for coworker, you also rank Biden 0.5 ahead of Bernie for coworker. Elizabeth Warren as a sibling. Um, 6.5. 6.5. So you ranked Elizabeth Warren a nine as a coworker. Yeah. And a nine as a friend, but only a 6.5 as a sibling. Why? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I think I'm imagining her as an older sibling and uh just arbitrarily and i'm also imagining that she uh would be patronizing to me as her younger sibling okay 
And, just, and just curious, as in a younger sibling. Where, where you... I'm imagining her as a parent being like good at communicating about her point of view and why she's formed it. I think as a sibling, I could see her uh, being more patronizing and less. Uh... So interesting. Like I think when I look at siblings, I might not necessarily look at picture of the older sibling. Right. So these different categories are very unique to people's totally. own personal experiences, which totally. explains why everyone has different preferred candidates. <laughs> Um, Joe Biden is a parent. Uh, I think 8.5. <laughs> okay. No idea. <laughs> um, Bernie Sanders is a friend. Uh, 10. <laughs> Why is that funny? You said Bernie Sanders was a seven coworker. So yeah. Bernie Sanders is your... He's actually your last ranked coworker, but he's your top ranked friend. Mm. Interesting. All right. What do you think? How do you think it shaped out? I mean, if, if, if we're it's, done, we're done. With if the there's grades. any, if there's any reliability with this measure, given last night's rankings, I'd say Bernie is maybe up top. And then. Well, last night's rankings were basically a three way tie. Right. That's why so we're doing this exercise. I'd say uh, Bernie more and Biden. Yeah, that's accurate. Your average score for Bernie was an 8.8. For Warren, it was 8.1. For Biden, it was 7.75. That's close. Uh, however, they all graded higher than you gave them yesterday. Yeah. Um, yeah. Interesting. And they all graded higher than well, the, than my, my grading, my grades and mom's grades. Interesting. Cool. Anyway, that's a, it's a neat little exercise. Um, all right. The last thing I want to want to talk to you about here is uh, we we both watched this movie yesterday, Okja. Okja. Okja by uh, the director of Parasite. So and, good. And it came out a couple of years ago, and it's a it's about um, this this new super pig that they create um, for. For meat, and they advertise it as eco-friendly, but really it's exploitative. And then it's about the bond of uh, this one uh, girl in South Korea who helped raise it growing up, and then the okja was taken from her, and she has to kind of, you know, uh, reunite with okja is yeah. the name of the big pig. Um, and it's it's a movie that really makes you want to go vegetarian. <laughs> and part of the reason we watched it was that Peter, you and I have been vegetarian. For this month, we did we did vegetarian February. It's the shortest month of the year. We've right. done it before. Um, how many days do you think this month have you broken well, your vegetarian ideology? So I'll qualify that my vegetarian uh, plan for this month was to remain vegetarian um, in terms of my purchasing and cooking. But if, uh, for instance, at Stony Brook, there's a departmental event and there there's meat served that I think might otherwise be thrown out, I would eat it. Uh, this month, I also visited people and spent time with people <laughs> who served meat. Okay. Quali so, qualification heard. How I, many days were you vegetarian? Uh, I would guess out of 29, I'd guess 24, 25. Really? Yeah. I feel like those days have all been when I've been with you. Mostly. You got fished this morning. True. Um, mom's birthday, you had pork both two days. days. Two days. So that's three days total. Yeah. 
And then I had... Those are the three days I've been with you so far. Yeah. So then there were probably <laughs> two or three other days. Okay. Yeah. I've broken it, I would say, the first day of mom's birthday weekend. I had tried a little bit of pork. Yeah. Um, I had chicken tacos one night because there wasn't really anything vegetarian on the menu worth you know, its salt. Um, then uh, I had... I had a cheesesteak when a friend visited and he really wanted cheesesteaks, but I want chicken, chicken cheesesteak. Mm. It's a little more palatable. That's better, yeah. Um, so that's three. And then I, I'm sure that I broke it a fourth time at some point. So I would say I'm about the same as you. So how do you feel about it? What are you going to, are you going to continue tomorrow? Tomorrow's March 1st. Will you continue being vegetarian? I think my, this version of vegetarian, I, I will try to keep doing most days yeah cool yeah i think i'm gonna try that but i'm also i'm gonna be pescatarian that's like i'm gonna eat fish yeah i think uh, that sounds good and if you're yeah, if you're in a, like a restaurant and most of the meat options seem way better than whatever they have or don't for vegetarians mm-hmm. uh i think fish is a I don't really know why, and I, I don't have a good justification for this, but it seems more humane to eat fish than other, than land animals. It's, it's very bizarre. They are more, I think. More. I would, I mean, I would never eat whale or dolphin, but like, I don't know. It's like, I would eat fish, but I wouldn't. You think because there's greater difference in terms of species? I don't know. I, I, I was saying like, I don't know how I would really rationalize this. Maybe it's the conditions. Maybe it's like the rate at which reproduction occurs, the lifespan. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. How would you How would you assess that in me? That condition. I'm, that disorder. <laughs> I wouldn't call it how, a disorder. <laughs> uh, I do think. On part, what trauma would you I, attribute I, I, I would, to pescatarians? Definitely, definitely wouldn't. Um, but I, I, I would say part of it is is pro- could be related to distance as a species where we have a greater connection to species that are that more closely resemble our own and fish are probably further than chicken and cows yeah say that's accurate and super pigs um yeah what do you what are you reading these days anything on the queue anything on the docket anything you want to plug Anything you're excited about? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm finishing Brian Green. Uh, his book. Oh, the the Elegant Universe, or does he have a new Until one? Until the end of time. Okay. It's I think it's new. Uh, cool. I think it's good. I am listening to it on audiobook and not reading it. Nice. And there are. You know, last yeah. time I was with you, you listened to the the Unhabitable Earth on audiobook. That was a book that I had read. Yeah. Um, the David Wallace Wells book on climate change. Um, was there anything that jumped out to you from that book? It's just something extremely memorable. Um, did you finish it? Uh, yeah, I yeah. think maybe the like the uh, the kind of layers of consequence, like what happens when the life locked in the polar ice caps is released into the planet, like these kind of downstream consequences that I maybe hadn't thought of before 
that book right. brought up those ideas for me. Right. So the cool. negative feedback loop yeah. that starts to get set in motion. Yeah. Yeah, it's not just sea level rise either. It's it's heat, extreme right. heat related death. Um it's viruses, you know. Um Yeah. Like this this coronavirus is it's probably the new normal. You know, when the environment changes, right. species um die off, which means you have to be more fit to survive, which means it kind of can accelerate evolution. Uh, in species of of lesser lifespan a little bit. Yeah. Um, And also, like you said, with the Arctic ice, it can release certain um, certain, uh, viruses that maybe have been dormant, locked in the permafrost. Again, we're not scientists. We're just (laughs) just brothers ruminating on our eco-anxiety and searching for reasons of optimism um, in this really beautiful world. So... I hope we can share it with our kids one day yeah, and that they can grow up as brothers. Uh, brother, Pete, it's been a pleasure having you on Climate Change oh, Therapy. Thanks for giving me another chance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we got a great dinner tonight, I think, with some cousins, seeing some, some more family. Um, and yeah, let's go on that epic walk this May. We're going to do the four borough walk we want to plug. Uh, Brooklyn to Queens to Randall's Island, to Manhattan, to the Bronx. Let's do it. Sounds like an awesome walk. Cool. Um, and, well, until then, uh, when, when's the next time we're going to see you? Maybe. Maybe, maybe Passover. Maybe Pesach. Yeah, we'll go meet some, up in Jersey. in Jersey. All right. See the grandma. Great. Grandma. How old is she now? 92, I think, right? 92. Still going strong. So has got her, yeah. her silver tongue, razor sharp wit. All right, you got, All right, brother. You got to teach me that, uh, that new finger picking you're doing. All right, the Travis picking, I got you. All right, I'll teach you um, uh, when the sparrows uh, come back from Capistrano. Nine-pound hammer. Yeah. And uh, just driving nails in my coffin. All right, you got it. All right, thanks, thanks listeners. Ladies and gentlemen, listeners uh, old and new, uh, we'll, we'll see you next time on Climate Change Therapy. Stay safe. Wash your hands. And, but don't be afraid to... Live a little bit. All right. Love you guys. I'm recording. Say something. Okay. Um, I'd like to talk to you about your Parallel Universe Index card. Okay. What would you like to ask me about? Um, I'd like to ask you about uh, its purpose. Uh, the, the time that you needed a Parallel Universe Index card with a little bit of information on it. Yes. <laughs> when I have plot line ideas for a story, uh-huh. I will, uh, I'll write it on an index card. Interesting. So, so say something. Well, this parallel universe index card has a few lines on it. One of them starts with tourism, sixth, seventh, never return. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about that storyline? Yeah, we're going to discover parallel universes and... They're going to be uh, tour planes that go there. But they're not going to return. They're one way. I see. So, like, friends of ours might book a trip to a parallel universe and never come back. Yeah. I mean, it's this isn't unheard of in human history. For example, you know, uh, when the New World was discovered, people left Europe to go to the New World without plans of ever returning. Right. 
Right, and then they're even the Wild West, even you know, yeah, yeah, no, that's a great rush. point. And then the, they're uh, here's a question: people who did go to the New World without plans of ever returning, they could presumably send money back to their families. Could you send money across universes? I haven't thought about that. Okay, but I don't believe so. Okay, so that's where the parallel universe parallel to recent history uh, breaks down a little bit, maybe <laughs> becomes new and interesting. I could, I mean, maybe, maybe <laughs> there, I don't think, I don't know that communication is feasible. Okay. Because the speed of light is, is a lot faster than the speed of sound. And in fact, um, travel can occur faster than the speed of sound. So I, I don't, just don't believe that communication is We'll see. Yeah, anyway, I'm going to just kind of test the uh, volume on this one.